The reading today is from uh, Psalm 95, and we're reading all the way through. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Uh, thank you so much, Bubs, for reading that passage for us. And please do keep it open in front of you as we look at it together. And if you'd find it helpful on the back of the service sheet, there's a, a rough outline that will kind of show us where we're heading this evening. Um, and if you haven't met, my name is Will. And before we begin, let's, let me lead us in prayer for the Lord's help. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that we are able to gather here and open up your word and hear from you this evening. We pray that you might speak to us by your word and you would help us not to harden our hearts to your voice. Amen. So this evening, we're going to be thinking about what's really at the heart of worship. As we've both kind of been reading and we, as we've sung as well this evening, kind of Psalm 95 is almost like a kind of call to worship. Just look back again at verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. And Psalm 95 is going to touch on many of the things we might expect to hear about when thinking about worship. But we're going to also see that it ends on what actually is the heart of worship. And that's something that's really, really important, even if we often overlook it or forget it. So to begin with this evening... I want us to think, what would you answer if someone asked you what is at the heart of worship? I'm sure there are many different ideas we think of to that question. Perhaps some of us here would think, well, surely that's singing, isn't it? Singing's the heart of our worship when we gather together to sing praises, sing praises to the Lord. Surely that's the heart of our worship. Or perhaps there'd be some here that might say, well, no, the heart of worship's when we kind of go quiet and we just come and really focus our, our hearts and our minds. We forget about everything else and we just meditate on who God is and what he's like. Perhaps that's what we would say worship is. Or as we saw in Romans 12 last year, some people might say, well, worship's everything in life. That's too big a thing to have just one focal point, one heart. You can't put a heart on worship because it's all that we do in all of our lives. Now, we're going to see that many of these aspects to worship are true, and they're all really good things. But actually, in Psalm 95, we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at what the psalm says is really at the heart of worship. Because it's actually in the back half of this psalm, it's in that that we see that that underpins all the other expressions of worship towards God. But despite its eternal significance for us, we all too easily forget it. So let's get back into what the heart of worship is and think about verses 1 to 5 under this heading, Singing Joyfully to the Creator and King. 
Let's read verses 1 to 2 again. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So the psalm begins with a call to come in and sing. Let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to him. But we aren't just to sing for the sake of singing and singing alone, but we do so with joy and thanksgiving because the psalm not only tells us to sing, but it also gives us wondrous reasons to sing. Let's turn to verses 3 to 5 and see why we're commanded to sing. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So we don't come together and just sing about anything, but we come together to sing praises to God, for he is the great and almighty God, the one who rules over all things, from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths. He's the great king. He's the one that rules above all other kings and all other gods. And we don't just sing because he's the king, but in those verses we see that he's the creator of all things too, that from the sea right through to the dry land, it's the same God who made it. So surely the creator and the king of the whole world, well, surely he's worth our praise. It's the fitting response when we see a God who's like that. So for Christians here, isn't it great that when we came here tonight, that we gathered and we sang. We got to sing together to focus our hearts on who God is and to praise him because he is so praiseworthy. And if there's anyone here that wouldn't call themselves a Christian, well, wouldn't you sing if you thought that God gave you every good gift you've ever been given, that everything you've ever had was all made by God? Surely that God deserves a response of thanksgiving and praise for how great he is. But if I may be so bold to ask you, are you responding to God in that way, in a way that he would deserve? Because as odd as it might look when you came here tonight and saw us all singing, singing is the appropriate response to who God is. That's why we take time as Christians to gather and to sing. But it's important because that's, it's important because that's part of our worship. But as we're going to see tonight, that's not where our worship stops. And I'd love to invite you to think about the importance of right worship if you're visiting tonight. Because we're all going to see that singing is a great part of our worship. But it's not the heart, so we can't stop there. So let's turn our attention to verses 6 to 7 as we look at bowing humbly before our maker and shepherd. Let's read verse 6 again. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So whereas in verse 1, we're encouraged to come in and join in with sung praises to the Lord, well here in verse 6, we're encouraged to accompany that with a lifetime of, of humble posture, of worship to God. Because the actual word worship in verse 6, well that literally means to bow down. So those thankful, joyous shouts, well, they're accompanied by bowing down before the Lord. 
And it might just be helpful for Christians here just to take a step back and just think, well, which of these two expressions am I more prone to neglect? If I thought about worship, do I, do I think more about singing and maybe forget to bow down? Or do I find bowing down easy but sometimes forget to be joyful and sing? Which of these do we need to be reminded of as part of our worship this evening? Because much like our encouragement to sing praises in verse 1 to 5, we're also given really good reasons as wise Christians we need to approach God humbly. Let's see, we bow down, verse 7, for he is our God, and we the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we bow humbly before God, firstly because he made us, but also because he made us to be his people. So worship definitely does include taking time to remove distractions, to focus our attention on God, to lift our eyes to him, so that we remember that we are his people and he is our God. Whether that's something we do as a whole church family together, or the posture we take in, in our entire life on our own, we've got to make sure, are we bowing down to God in worship to acknowledge that he's both our maker and our shepherd, and that we are his people. And I don't think we need to get too worried or too hung up about the kind of physical outworking. So we don't need to all get onto our knees right now, because I don't think that's the main focus. It's actually the internal attitude of humility before God. But I guess it is still worth asking this question. Are you ever prepared to get on your knees before God, would you ever be prepared to bow down before him? Because perhaps if that seems unthinkable, that seems silly, maybe we're just a little bit too proud before God and haven't realized whose hands we're in. Because it's right to fear God, and it's right to bow down before him, because just look at his hands. Because it's the same hands which hold us as his sheep, as the ones that made all things, as the ones that rules over all things. So it's right to bow down before him as we see whose hands we're in and how powerful they are. So in, in Psalm 95, we've been seeing kind of what worship is. So on the one hand, it's singing joyfully because God is the creator and king. And it's bowing humbly because God is our maker and shepherd. But the surprise we'll see in the rest of the psalm is that the heart of worship is not focused on our voice or on our knees, but instead the heart of worship is focused on our ears and on our hearts. So we'll look at the final part of this psalm in verses 7 to 11 to see what God himself says is at the heart of worship. So let's think about listening intently to God by not hardening our hearts in verses 7 to 11. And the big surprise this psalm comes at the end of verse 7, where the tone changes and we suddenly read this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that might seem like a bit of a, a sudden gear change, mightn't it? We started off talking about our voice, and now suddenly we're talking about his voice. So it might just be helpful to, to briefly look at what the Bible says worship is as a whole. And throughout the Old Testament, 
we see that the heart of worship was listening to God's voice. You can go and read about it in Exodus, that we see that when God brought his people out of Egypt, well, he did so so that they might worship him in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And when his people gathered at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, well, at the heart of their gathering, they took time to listen to God's voice. They listened to him speak to them. And it's because of how important listening is that the psalmist takes us back to that Exodus generation who hardened their hearts in verses 7 to 11. Let's read verse 7 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So what does it look like to harden our hearts? Well, it's to hear God's voice, but not to listen to it. To hear it, but not trust it, but instead put God to the test. To look to what we see and not listen or trust what we hear. And from verse 8 onwards, God uses the Exodus generation as an example of hard-heartedness. For they found themselves in the wilderness, the very place where they were meant to be worshipping God. But whilst they were there, they hardened their hearts to his voice. They looked what they saw, and they did not listen or trust what God had told them. In Exodus 17, once the people had got to these places called Meribah and Massa, well, the people hardened their hearts, and they put God's words to the test. Because then they found themselves in, in those places without water, and as you can imagine, they were very first thirsty. And obviously, they did need to get some water. But in that situation, they could either trust God's voice when he said that he would protect for them and care for them and provide for them, or they could harden their hearts to it and grumble. And at Meribah Massa, they forgot God's words, and they put him to the test. Fortunately for them, God did provide water on that day, but the people had set into motion a habit of hardening their hearts to his voice. So that by the time they got to the banks of the Jordan and were ready to go into the promised land in Numbers 14, well, they saw the might of the nations and they rebelled against God and did not listen to him, even though he told them that he would give them the land, that they would defeat the nations, they didn't listen to him. And because of their hearts at that time, we see in verse 10, that for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. The generation which had seen God's work in Egypt with the plagues and the Passover, and then again in the wilderness with the parting of the Red Sea and manna falling from heaven, this generation really had seen God's work. But... When they stopped listening to God, the people who had seen God's work, well, they became the very same people who didn't even know his ways. And when, and when we look back at this generation and think about what they did, it can just seem a little bit foolish, can't it? It seems so sensible that you would listen to God's words instead of reject them. But before we ridicule and, and think that that's ridiculous for them, what does that say about when we are quick to forget God's words, when we're not tempted to listen to God's voice today. 
Because we've been blessed to have heard God speak by his word so often. But do I trust God and his word, even when the circumstances appear too difficult? Because just like them, we so easily look to what we see and don't remember what God says. Because the people at Meribah Massa were pretty thirsty, and the nations in Canaan did look pretty scary. Those aren't small things, and it wasn't easy to trust God's voice. But that is exactly why listening to him is so important. It's not always easy to go by what we hear, and if we don't listen, we'll go by what we see and harden our hearts. And it's not as if we haven't seen enormous proof of God's work. Just last week, we came here to remember how Jesus died on the cross for us, how he took our punishment, how he faced the wrath of God which we deserved for our sins. Yet despite having seen the cross, we are so often still tempted to harden our hearts to what God says. Such as when we read of what we ought to do in the Bible and yet choose to ignore it, or just to think that it doesn't really matter, or when we just think that listening to God isn't actually that important. We too must remember the warning in verse 7, because listening to God truly is at the heart of worship, even if we forget it, even if we overlook it. And please don't hear me wrong, the other aspects of worship we've seen tonight are really important, and the psalm does clearly tell us to do them. But crucially, they are so important because once we've sung joyfully to the Creator and King, and once we've bowed humbly before our Maker and Shepherd, well, those things put our hearts in a better place to listen. They help us to stop hardening our hearts to Him. And inversely, how could we even know to praise God and to bow before Him unless we'd listened when He told us to do it? It's really important that we listen. So what have we seen so far in Psalm 95? Well, we've seen that worship does look like singing, and it does look like bowing, but that listening is central to it, and that worship based on this honors God. But we'll see now that worship like this, where it matters, because it has eternal significance for us, because when the Exodus generation hardened their hearts to God's voice, we see what happened to them. Let's read verse 11. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hardening their hearts to God's voice meant wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and that they died in the wilderness never to see rest. And listening to God today is still central to our worship, because to harden our hearts to God's voice is to miss entering his rest. And this idea of, of keeping on going and keeping on listening to God's voice as a whole church, well, that's exactly how the author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 95 in chapters 3 and 4 of that book. And in those chapters, Psalm 95 is quoted heavily as the author tries to help us to see our need to continue to fix our gaze on Christ as the one who's made it into God's rest and whom we can follow there, but also to help us to see the need 
to keep encouraging one another to listen to God's voice and keep on going to eternal rest. Don't worry, we won't be doing a kind of full-blown view of what Hebrews has to say this evening, but it might just be helpful if we were to turn up to Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 right now. And they can be found on page 1002 of the Church Bibles. And we're going to see how the author of Hebrews applies this psalm within the corporate life of the church. And in Hebrews 3 to 4, it is keeping the saints going, which is why the author puts such an emphasis on the importance of listening at the center of our gathering, as well as the center of our worship in each of our lives. Because unlike that Exodus generation, we do not want to harden our hearts to his voice and miss coming into God's rest. So in Hebrews chapter 3, after having quoted the back half of Psalm 95, it says this, starting at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we see that the author wants us to exhort, that is to really strongly encourage. He wants us to exhort one another today so that we might avoid hardening our hearts due to the deceitfulness of sin, but instead to listen to God's voice in worship. And it goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the author takes Psalm 95, and you can see just how often he quotes it if you scan your eyes across those chapters, and he uses it to encourage us as believers to exhort one another to keep listening to God's word, so that together we can strive to enter future rest instead of becoming a group that veers away from God and his words. Which is why later on in Hebrews, in chapter 10, the author stresses the importance to continue to meet together as a church family so that we make sure that none of us let our hearts slip away and go astray, but we exhort one another to keep on going today. And that's why it's so important when we gather, such as on a Sunday, or in our midweek small group, or if we're just meeting up with someone else from church. That's why it's so important that we read and open God's word. And not just read it tokenistically, but actually seeking to understand it and to apply it. Seeking to, to help each other to know what it would look like to apply it in each other's lives. To be hungry for what God says and to exhort one another to keep on listening. But what would it actually look like if we were going to be a church who exhorted one another to avoid hardening our hearts to God's voice. Well, firstly, as I'm, as I'm all too aware of in myself, this doesn't come naturally to many of us. We might not want to be the person who's initiating the serious conversation over a coffee after, after the service, and we can all be, always be a bit too awkward about applying the Bible, let alone if we're trying to apply it in a way that exhorts someone to listen to it seriously and exhorts them to avoid sin. But wouldn't it be great 
if we each committed to speak to other Christians after the service so that we can apply more richly what God is saying by his word in the reading and in the sermon? Perhaps that might look like asking something like this. What struck you about the sermon this evening? Or perhaps as someone you know this evening, you might ask, what tempts us to harden our hearts to God's word today? Or heading out into the rest of the week, when we see people from our small group, how about asking how a recent passage has helped grow or change our walk with the Lord Jesus? Or when we see someone who's starting to be deceived by sin and is tempted to harden his or her heart to God's word, well, how about trying to show them the importance of what the Bible says, even if it doesn't say what we might want it to? And there are many among us who know how hard and painful this can be, even from recent conversations. But Psalm 95 should help motivate us because we see that it's a worthwhile thing to help us all to keep going to the end so that we all individually and as a church strive to enter rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience we saw in that Exodus generation. God keeps his people going to the end through helping us to listen to his voice and through each other as we exhort one another to keep going and to not harden our hearts. So those conversations over a coffee after church, where we apply God's word together, or those meetups where we chat about what the Bible says, well, they're all helping the church to keep going, keep going listening to God, and keep going to the end to make that final rest. And that's why it's such a great thing at Chalmers to be part of a small group, or maybe just be meeting up with someone one-on-one to read the Bible, as it gives us people who will encourage us to keep going, listening to God's word, and it will help us to stop hardening our hearts to it. And if you're a Christian here tonight who is worried about if you're hardening your heart, well, firstly, this is a stark warning and a wake-up call about the seriousness of it. But if you read on in Hebrews, we see that God is the one who helps us to make it. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus has passed through to that eternal rest and provides us with grace and mercy when we need it now, so we might be kept going to meet him at the end. And one of the means that we're provided with is a church family who exhort one another and who encourage each other to listen to God's voice so that we might be a church who truly worship God as we listen to God's voice, which is right at the heart of worship. Just as I close, there's a famous Christian song that I'm sure many of you here will know. And the start of the chorus, it goes something like this. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. And in a sense, as we've seen tonight, that's very true, isn't it? It's a song that reminds us that worship's more than the song, it's more than the moment, and that worship's definitely all about God. But having read Psalm 95 tonight, perhaps we could be a little bit cheeky and alter it slightly and say, I'm coming back to the very heart of worship, and it's all about listening to you, God. 
So if you want to find a church which is truly worshipping God, well, yes, it should definitely be singing. And yes, it should definitely be bowing humbly. But it must never forget to listen intently to God's voice. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's respond to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us today, and please help each of us not to harden our hearts to your voice, but instead help us to exhort one another to listen to you. Amen.